Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On October 20th, 1993, a woman working on the tip line for America's Most Wanted took a call from an upset woman. The caller claimed to have information regarding the story that had just aired about the unknown identity of two female bodies found murdered in California in the mid-80s. She identified herself as Terry Knorr, and she claimed that the victims were not only connected by their shared killer, but they were also sisters. Her sisters. This is Monsters. Teresa Jimmy Francine Cross was born on March 14, 1946 in Sacramento, California. She was the first child of her parents, Jim and Sweeney, although her mother had two children from a previous marriage. Jim worked as a cheesemaker while Sweeney raised the children. However, in the late 1950s, the roles were reversed when Jim was forced to quit his job after being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, a brain disorder that causes unintended or uncontrollable movements such as shaking, stiffness, and difficulty with balance and coordination. Sweeney became the primary breadwinner for the family while the children took turns taking care of Jim. As Jim's condition worsened, he became more immobile and he started to take his frustrations out on his wife and children. This was the beginning of Teresa's long and fatal relationship with violence. Teresa was extremely close to her mother, who did her best to protect the children from Jim's outbursts. But everything changed in 1961, when Teresa watched her mother take her last breath. While Jim had been battling Parkinson's, Sweeney had unknowingly been suffering from congestive heart failure. With the main income earner dead and Jim unable to work, the family were forced to sell their home and move into rented accommodations. A year later, when Teresa was 16 years old, she dropped out of high school to marry her boyfriend Clifford Sanders. Clifford was five years older than his bride, and to Teresa, he represented stability and a life outside of her father's abuse. But this was no fairy tale high school romance. Teresa herself was extremely controlling and jealous of Clifford, and she constantly accused him of cheating on her. Their fights almost always ended in violence, with each of them as physical as the other. Despite the on-again-off-again nature of their marriage, in 1963, Teresa gave birth to their first child, Howard. Unsurprisingly, the arrival of a baby did little to change the dynamics of their relationship. If anything, it made it worse. Clifford had a job. He could go out drinking when he wanted, and he was free to spend time with his friends, while Teresa was stuck at home with Howard. Her jealousy was all-consuming, and eventually, Clifford decided he had had enough, and on June 6, 1964, he told his wife he was leaving. 
He had threatened to walk out before, but this time Teresa could tell he meant it. As Clifford walked out the door of their home, Teresa took her husband's rifle and shot him in the back. Sitting on the floor between Teresa and her husband was baby Howard. Violence entered his life just ten days before his first birthday. Just like his mother, it was merely the beginning of a long and fatal relationship. After shooting Clifford, Teresa calmly picked up her son and walked a few houses up the road to knock on the door of the deputy sheriff's home. She told him, quote, You gotta come quick, I shot my husband in the arm. The deputy raced back to the Sanders home, but it was too late. Clifford was already dead. Unlike what Teresa had told the deputy, it was no single shot to the arm. He had been shot once directly in his heart. Clifford would have been dead almost as soon as he hit the floor. Teresa explained the shooting as self-defense. She claimed that Clifford was violently beating her with the butt of his rifle and she had managed to wrestle the gun from his hands and shot him to protect herself and her baby. To prove her point, she reminded the sheriff about an incident just two weeks prior where she had called the cops because Clifford had hit her. She had refused to press charges against her husband because he had moved out the same night. Tragically, he had only returned to the home the day before Teresa shot him. Right away, the deputy sensed something wasn't adding up. Teresa was a petite 18-year-old, and Clifford was more than 6 foot tall and 200 pounds. So how could she have wrestled the weapon out of his hands? She had no signs of bruising or injuries from the violent beating she claimed to have suffered, and then there was the fact that Clifford was facing out of the door when he was shot. Surely if they had been wrestling over the weapon, he would have been facing her when she pulled the trigger. Teresa was taken into custody and charged with murder and Howard was sent to stay with relatives. The following day, she was interviewed again and even though the shooting had taken place less than 24 hours earlier, Teresa had already changed her story. This time, she told a more likely tale. She stated that Clifford hadn't actually hit her that morning, he had just threatened to. When she saw him packing his bags to leave, she went into the bedroom where the gun was stored, loaded it, and brought it back into the living room. As he reached for the door, Teresa claimed that she blacked out, saying, quote, I remember holding the gun and having my finger on the trigger, but then everything went blank. A month after the shooting, Teresa pleaded not guilty to murder. By the time her trial got underway, she had another secret to share. Teresa revealed that she was pregnant with her dead husband's baby, and she made sure to use the pregnancy to her advantage throughout the trial. In the court, she looked like a caring and devoted mother. She dressed conservatively and cried at exactly the right moments. When it was her turn to testify, she claimed that she loved her husband and that she had simply wanted to scare Clifford. She never meant to kill him. At the same time, she was very clear that her husband was a violent alcoholic and womanizer. Clifford's family strongly defended his character. His sister said he was a gentle and loving man that never once laid a hand on his pretty young wife. She claimed that Teresa was the violent and controlling one who went so far as to drive Clifford to and from work each day so that he never met any other women. She told the court that she believed Teresa had intentionally killed him because he was going to leave her. Clifford's sister also made another shocking claim. She told the court that Teresa had shot at Clifford once before. She had missed the first time, but she didn't miss the second. 
When the jury retired for deliberations, there was no question that Teresa had been the one to put the bullet through Clifford. It was just a matter of whether she should be held responsible for her actions. After an hour of deliberations, the jury returned their verdict. Not guilty. Teresa had gotten away with murder for the first time. Eight months later, she gave birth to her first daughter, Sheila. The birth was a turning point for Teresa, but not in a good way. She started drinking heavily and going out more often. After starting a relationship with an army veteran, she would leave the two young children with him while she was out drinking, sometimes for days at a time. When the man discovered Teresa was sleeping around, he left. Singledom didn't last long for Teresa, and by the end of the year, she was in a new relationship with another military vet. Robert Wallace Knorr was two years younger than Teresa and an active Marine. Just a couple of months after meeting, she was pregnant again. The couple got married after Susan was born, and a year later, she delivered William, who was also known as Billy Bob. A year after that, there was another boy, Robert Jr., Teresa was now 22 years old and the mother of five children under five. All seven of them were crammed into a tiny two-bedroom house with little room for anyone to get privacy from each other. Despite the evident intimacy between Robert and Teresa, the relationship had many of the same problems as her marriage to Clifford. Teresa still had a drinking problem and was intensely jealous, while Robert had a violent temper and a drinking problem of his own. Just like what had happened to Teresa and her siblings, the children were often caught in the middle of their parents' fights. For the most part, Teresa tried to protect her children from Robert's abuse, but more often than not, it was up to the oldest child, Howard, to patch up the wounds on his siblings. By the time Teresa became pregnant with her sixth child, the violence inside the home had become all-consuming and barely a day passed without an incident of some kind. When Terry was born in August of 1970, the family was at a breaking point and a month later, Robert packed up his bags and filed for divorce. The separation should have marked a new start for Teresa and her six children. Instead, they moved from house to house while she went from man to man. There were two more marriages and two more divorces before the family settled into a home in Sacramento which was finally big enough to house all of them comfortably. For a while, things were really looking up and the children were settled. Teresa seemed much happier on her own and she doted on the children. She took the younger ones to Dairy Queen while the older kids were at school and when she didn't have money for school books, she would pawn off some of her belongings to make ends meet. Even after having six kids and being a busy stay-at-home mom, Teresa always presented herself well and took care of her appearance. She was slim and attractive, and she knew how to highlight her best features to get the attention of any man she set her eyes on. But after her fourth marriage, a change started to occur. She began to put on weight rapidly, and she stopped brushing her hair like she used to. But it wasn't just her appearance that had changed. Teresa had never been religious, but all of a sudden began reading the Bible at every opportunity. She forced the kids to recite verses, and she restricted who they could spend time with, especially if they weren't religious. What Teresa didn't know then was that the most ungodly of acts was happening inside the walls of her very own house. Terry was just six years old when her older brother Howard began molesting her. It took a few months before Teresa found out what was going on, and when it finally came out into the open, all hell broke loose. 
She brutally beat Howard for what he had done with the hopes that her violence would stop him from ever doing it again. Spoiler alert, violence rarely puts an end to violence, especially when it comes to children. After that, everything changed. Not long after the beating, the mother of one of Terry's friends came by the family home to drop off some clothes she thought Terry might like. When the woman left, Teresa forced her daughter to strip naked and she dragged her around the house by her hair. Then she took a piece of rope, tied it around Terry's neck, and strung it up over the top of a door. She had Billy Bob and Rob Jr. hold the rope in place while she whipped Terry with a stick until the child nearly passed out. She told Terry that they weren't a charity case and that if she found out that Terry had been telling lies about the family's finances, she would beat her all over again and worse. Then her attention turned to her second oldest daughter, Susan. Teresa began to tell the other children that Susan was a devil worshipper and a witch. She told them that Susan was plotting to kill her mother and that she had to do it before she turned 18 to fulfill her contract with the devil. Whenever something in the house went wrong, it was always Susan's fault. A plumbing leak? Susan. A broken hinge? Susan. Susan took more of a beating than any of the children at the time, and no one could do anything about it or Teresa turned on them instead. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. By this time, Howard was around 14 years old and Teresa started to disappear for days at a time. She would leave Howard in charge of feeding and disciplining his siblings. Don't forget, this is a boy who less than a year earlier was caught molesting his little sister. When she returned home, she would get into bed and stay there for days at a time, only coming out to use the bathroom. She even stopped showering, and yet she still maintained full control over the children. Her favorite weapon to carry out her punishments was a piece of 2x4 lumber. On the piece of wood, she wrote the words Board of Education, and she used it to dish out punishments for any minor misdeed. Howard also took his fair share of beatings, but that came to a halt when he was 15 and had grown to over 6 feet tall and weighed over 190 pounds. When Teresa realized he could give as good as he got and that one day he might fight back, she stopped targeting him. Instead, she had him take on the role of father figure and join in on punishing the children. As soon as Teresa stopped beating Howard, her violent focus moved almost exclusively to the three daughters. She became convinced that they were all having sex with random boys. At the time, her oldest girl, Sheila, was only 13. Teresa became obsessed with how the girls looked. While she got progressively heavier and more unattractive, the girls were growing into slim, attractive young women. Teresa hated them for it, and she strictly controlled their lives. They weren't allowed out of the house even to socialize, and she forced them to drop out of school before the 8th grade. At any sign of misbehavior, the girls would be violently beaten by the Board of Education wielded by either Teresa or Howard, or at times, both of them. There was a short reprieve from the violence when Howard decided he didn't want to hurt his siblings anymore. 
He got a job as a chef and began to spend more time outside of the house, which gave him a new perspective on his mother's violence. After that, he began standing up to Teresa whenever she raised a hand to one of the others. But the peace didn't last long when she realized that she simply had to make sure he was out of the house when she wanted to dish out some punishment. There was no predicting Teresa's preferred choice of punishment. In one instance, she pulled out one of Susan's teeth with her bare hands because it was crooked. In another, she forced the girls to eat until they vomited because she wanted them to get fat so they wouldn't be as attractive anymore. At other times, she forced the children to dig up their entire backyard for days using only spoons. Susan was still the primary target of her mother's anger, and after a particularly violent beating, she decided to run away. But just a few miles down the road, she was picked up by the police who noticed the bruises all over her body. They took Susan to the hospital, where she told the nurses that her mother had been beating her. She was taken to Child Protective Services, where she begged to be made a ward of the court. But when Teresa was asked about her daughter's claims, she denied any abuse and said her daughter had been suffering from mental health issues for years. Yeah, mental health issues that you gave her. As soon as Susan was returned home, Teresa began targeting her with a new passion. She withheld food and water, locked her inside a cupboard, and even encouraged her sons to beat their sister as well. She told the other children that Susan had an STD and that she was a witch who would end up killing them all. For weeks, the treatment continued, and then, somehow, it got even worse. One day, Teresa forced her sons to hold Susan's hands behind her back while she punched her repeatedly in the stomach. Then she pulled out a pistol and fired it directly into Susan's chest. The bullet entered under her breast and traveled through her ribs and lodged itself somewhere in her back. Teresa then dragged her daughter's body into the bathtub and told the other children to clean up the mess. For hours, they scrubbed every sign of what had just happened from the floor, the walls, and the bathroom. But what to do about the body? To their shock, Susan began making sounds from the bathtub. She had lost a lot of blood, but she had survived the shooting. Terry and Sheila begged their mother to get some medical help for Susan, but she refused. She told the children that Susan deserved to get shot for her sins and that whether she survived or not would confirm that she was a witch. Teresa never did explain whether surviving or dying meant she was right, though. By then, the children had experienced and witnessed years of abuse, and each one of them knew they could be next if they said or did the wrong thing. Teresa made sure all of them had the same story about what had happened to Susan, in case anyone ever asked. Their cover story was that Sheila had accidentally stabbed her sister and none of the children dared to disagree. For weeks, Susan was left in the bathtub with only her sisters taking any time to really care for her. They gave her a pillow and a blanket and fed her when she felt like she could eat. When she was finally well enough to make her way out of the bathtub, Susan decided she would stay out of the house and away from her mother as much as possible. Not long after the shooting incident, Teresa told the children they were going to be moving again. She had recently reconnected with her estranged sister, Rosemary, who helped them pack up their belongings and move to a single-level apartment in North Sacramento. Once again, it felt like the children were all living on top of each other. There wasn't enough room for them all, even with Howard moving out and Susan being away as much as she could be. But the small size was by design. 
Teresa wanted to keep a closer eye on her children and the small home meant there was no way for them to be out of her sight. It was this small apartment that was about to become a house of horrors. Susan might have cheated death when she survived the bullet wound, but she wouldn't be so lucky a second time. Days after moving into the apartment, Teresa began handcuffing Susan to the dining room table. She was only allowed to eat when Teresa said so, and she put other children on shifts to watch over and make sure their sister didn't escape. Susan would often go for days without eating or drinking, and in the evenings, she would be moved to the bedroom where she was handcuffed to the bed and fed tranquilizers so she couldn't escape at night. For weeks, all Susan's siblings heard from her lips were moans of pain or screams during her drug-induced nightmares. Over and over again, Teresa told the other children that their sister was a witch or possessed by the devil and that she was being locked up to keep them all safe. She blamed Susan for her own weight gain and her health issues and she told them not to touch their sister or they would catch a disease. Sometime in the middle of this period of torture, the body of Teresa's sister Rosemary was found on the side of a highway in Placer County, just northeast of Sacramento. She had been strangled to death. Detectives were keen to talk to Teresa about her sister's death. They had seen Rosemary's husband come and go from the small apartment and they suspected the pair might be having an affair. When they showed up to speak to Teresa, she turned on the same charm she had used to get out of her first husband's murder. She was happy to talk to them and she emphasized that she didn't know anything about her sister's death. To this day, Rosemary's murder has never been solved. After the visit from the police, Teresa became even more paranoid about Susan being possessed by the devil. By then, Susan was so weak from her imprisonment that she could barely hold her own weight and she was often sick with a fever. One night, Teresa forced her daughter to stand with her face to the wall and she took up a position down the hallway. Treating her daughter like a dartboard, she threw a pair of scissors directly into her back. They embedded one inch into Susan's flesh, but the girl was so emaciated and sick that she didn't even flinch. Days later, Susan was forced to smoke a joint, and in the haze of her inebriation, she begged her mother to buy her a one-way ticket to Alaska and set her free. To everyone's shock, Teresa agreed, but only on one condition. She told Susan she would let her go, but only if she removed the bullet that was still lodged in her daughter's back. It was the first time Susan had come close to freedom and she hastily agreed to her mother's demands. Teresa's concession was no act of love. She knew that if Susan ever told anyone what she had done, the bullet would prove that everything she said was true. The bullet was evidence and she needed to get rid of it. What happened next is the stuff of nightmares. Teresa told her boys to hold Susan face down on the floor. All Teresa had to carry out the procedure was some old medical instruments she had gathered over the years. There were no sterile gloves or antiseptics, and the only pain relief available was the sedatives Susan was forced to take each night. They were downed along with a half a bottle of whiskey, and the procedure began. Two hours later, after much digging around, Teresa found the bullet. By then, Susan was in a bad way. She had lost a lot of blood, and it's not like she was in peak health when she went into the procedure. Unbelievably, just like with the gunshot, Susan somehow survived the so-called operation. 
maybe it would have been better if she hadn't. 24 hours later, Susan woke up and found herself laying face down on the floor where she had been left. A child-sized diaper had been wrapped around her hips to collect any bodily fluids. Her siblings had all been told not to help her, even though they all had to step over her unconscious body to access the kitchen. Just like with the gunshot, Teresa had told them that Susan's death or survival would indicate whether or not she was a witch. Within days, Susan was showing signs of a severe infection. Her wound was bright pink and oozing a smelly fluid, and she was sweating and hallucinating. Her jaw was locked into place, so she couldn't take any fluids or pain relief, even if there had been any to give. Once again, Terry begged her mother to help, and once again, Teresa refused. Instead, she came up with another plan. On July 16, 1984, Teresa and her sons bundled Susan and every item that belonged to her in the back of their vehicle. Terry was left at home to clean up while the boys and Teresa drove to a secluded spot 60 miles out of Sacramento by a small creek. They pulled over and piled everything from inside the car, including Susan, onto the dirt. Next, Teresa doused everything with gasoline. Susan was still alive when her brother flicked a match onto the pile. Later that morning, a passing trucker was flagged down by a woman who had noticed smoke coming from the area beside the creek. He had a fire extinguisher on board, and he rushed over to put out the flames. As the smoke cleared, they could see what looked like the toes of a mannequin poking out from a pile of rubbish. As we all know by now, though, it's never a mannequin. As the man moved around the pile, he could see that this was in fact the body of a young woman. Her face had been completely burned off, but there was duct tape over what had once been her mouth, and ties were still visible around her wrists. The man drove straight over to the sheriff's office to tell him about the disturbing discovery. An hour later, the area was cordoned off and a crime scene investigation began. Authorities could immediately tell that the fire had been deliberately set and that the victim had been murdered. Adding to the concern was the discovery of diapers around the scene, which led them to believe that the young woman might have had a child with her at the time of her murder. Alongside the diapers, they found perfume, a toothbrush, bell-shaped earrings, a silver ring, and writing paper. Amongst it all, there was nothing to indicate who the young woman was. When Susan's body was removed for autopsy, she simply became known as Jane Doe, number 487384. The autopsy showed that Susan had died after being bound, gagged, beaten, and set alight, and that she had suffered burns to 90% of her body. On top of the damage caused by the fire, Susan also had a large ovarian tumor, which was an indication that she had suffered a severe beating to her stomach. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. While investigators attempted to find out Jane Doe's real name, Teresa returned home completely unaffected by her daughter's murder. 
despite telling the children that Susan was a devil worshipper and a witch. Her death didn't bring an end to their mother's tyrannical abuse. If anything, it seemed to encourage her. With Susan out of the picture, Teresa's attention turned to her oldest daughter, Sheila. A few months after the murder, she sent Sheila to work as a prostitute. Every dollar that she earned on the street had to be given to Teresa. After just a few weeks, Teresa became convinced that her daughter had gotten pregnant with one of her customers and she focused her beatings on Sheila's stomach. A few weeks later, Sheila was injured in a hit-and-run and her mother told everyone it was a sign that her daughter had become possessed by the devil, just like Susan. Once again, she forced the two boys to hold Sheila down while she brutally beat and strangled her. Then she chained Sheila to the table and began force-feeding her macaroni and cheese. When Sheila began throwing up and refusing to eat anymore, Teresa forced the food into her mouth so aggressively that one of her teeth broke. After another particularly violent beating, Teresa filled their bathtub with ice cubes and freezing water and made Sheila sit in it for hours to help bring out the bruises from the beating. Within months of Susan's murder, Sheila had taken up the same spot under the table. She was chained there during the day and transferred to the bed at night when her mother didn't have her out working the streets. Teresa was still obsessed with the idea that Sheila was pregnant and she made her brothers take her to the doctor for an examination. The doctor confirmed what Sheila had been trying to tell her mother all along. She wasn't pregnant and never had been. But Teresa wouldn't let up. Instead of focusing on pregnancy, she became fixated on the idea that Sheila had a venereal disease. She sent Sheila off to another doctor who confirmed that she didn't have any such disease, but once again, Teresa wouldn't hear it. She was convinced that her daughter had been given a secret cure by the doctor, and she threatened that if she didn't tell her what it was, there would be hell to pay. You'll be able to guess by now that she meant that literally. Since there was no secret cure, Sheila had nothing to tell. So Teresa hogtied her and forced her into the fetal position in a tiny closet in the apartment. The closet measured two feet by two and a half feet and was filled with shelves, with only the bottom one removed so that Sheila could fit. The door handle was removed so that no one else could open it and Sheila was shoved inside with her feet bound and her hands tied behind her. Teresa told the children that they weren't allowed to feed Sheila anything until she admitted what the secret cure to the venereal disease was. After days in the tiny dark closet, Sheila decided to tell her mother what she wanted to hear. She confessed that she had secretly been given a cure, but when her mother asked what the cure was, Sheila didn't know what to say. After that, Teresa dragged her back into the tiny closet. The siblings listened in silence as their sister cried and begged to be let go. By then, it was the middle of summer, and the temperature inside the apartment often reached 85 degrees Fahrenheit or 30 degrees Celsius. Sheila was confined to a tiny closet with no airflow, and she hadn't had anything to eat or drink for days. It comes as no surprise, then, that by June 21st, 1985, all of the noises coming out of the closet had stopped. There was no noise the next day either, or the next. On the third day, Teresa opened the door and announced, quote, She's dead. Yeah, no shit. This time, Teresa decided it would be best if there wasn't much left of Sheila to be found. 
She told the boys that she was going to dismember their sister, but after a couple of hours, she realized it would be too messy and leave too much evidence behind in the apartment. Instead, she had the children wrap Sheila's body inside cardboard boxes and put her into the back of the car. They drove the same direction as the night they had killed Susan, but instead of the spot by a stream, they chose a new location next to Truckee Airport. Just like Susan, they left Sheila like a piece of trash on the side of the road, except for this time, they didn't burn her. Teresa was paranoid that the girls' bodies would be connected if the scenes were too similar. Sheila's body was discovered the next morning by a local fisherman who thought the cardboard box marked with popcorn cups looked out of place. He lifted a flap to the box and saw a left arm, shoulder, and hips of a person in the fetal position. When investigators arrived, they combed the area for any evidence of who the body belonged to, but there was nothing that indicated the corpse's identity. Sheila's cause of death was listed as undetermined, and just like her little sister Susan, she was identified simply by a name and number. Jane Doe, number 6607-85. As Teresa had hoped, the two bodies weren't considered to be connected even though they were found just 15 miles or 24 kilometers apart. Terry and her brothers were forced to clean up any sign of the horrors that had taken place inside the apartment. But Teresa's paranoia was insatiable and a few months later she told the children there was only one way to wipe the memory of Sheila from their minds completely. Fire. She had used it once before and it had worked wonders. She had Terry spray the inside of the house with a lighter fluid and throw a match in through the window. As she had planned, the unit went up in minutes and any sign that Susan and Sheila had ever existed went up with it. While fires are universally devastating, for Terry it sparked a new idea. Billy Bob had moved out not long after Sheila's murder and now it was just Teresa, Robert, and Terry. She was the only girl left and she knew she was next in line to become the object of her mother's violence. It was now or never to break free. Terry was just 15 years old when she finally had the courage to leave home. She didn't know where she was going to go or how she was going to survive, but surely anything was better than the hell she lived in with her mother and brother. She started out by working on the streets, just like Sheila had. At times, she even assumed the identity of Susan so she could get into the bars and pick up wealthier clients. At one point, Terry was taken in by a street mother who initially seemed to help her out. But Terry had bad luck with mothers and this one eventually introduced her to drugs, leading to a lifelong battle with addiction. Despite her trauma, from the day Terry escaped, she wasn't shy in sharing what had happened to her or to Susan and Sheila. Yet despite detailing the abuse and murders to countless professionals, law enforcement officers, and lawyers, it would be years before anyone truly listened. Even her own therapist wrote off much of her story as implausible. Terry's first attempt to have her sister's death investigated came in 1987 when she sat down with a lawyer and told him the whole story. The lawyer never said a word to anyone else about what Terry had told him that day. Meanwhile, Teresa and the only son that was still living under her roof, Robert, decided it was time for a change of scenery and they moved to a small apartment in Nevada. The stay was short-lived when Robert began running with the wrong crowd and getting into trouble with the law. 
when the police came knocking one too many times, Teresa decided she needed to start afresh. She wasn't looking for a new house, she was looking for a whole new identity. Teresa took out a map and decided on Utah. Why Utah? Well, Teresa had somewhat of an affinity for the Mormon religion, and she knew that if she converted, she would be accepted into the community. Being part of a church would help conceal her identity and keep her under the radar. From the day she arrived in Utah, she referred to herself by her maiden name, Teresa Cross. She put on the fake charm that had worked so well on policemen and juries and landed herself a job as a live-in carer for a 72-year-old woman, Alice. If you're hearing alarm bells, it's understandable, except from that day forward, there was no sign of the murderous, abusive monster that the Nor children had grown up with. Everyone who met Teresa seemed to love her. She was warm and caring, and she was always well presented with her hair done up neatly and wearing tidy clothes. She used her salary to buy a nice car, expensive makeup, and a wardrobe full of high-end clothing. She was completely unrecognizable. Her children had been raised on box meals and processed food, but Teresa cooked Alice gourmet meals from scratch. The children weren't allowed out of the house, but Teresa took Alice to the local cinema and went out socializing with friends. In the evening, visitors would drop over for a drink and Teresa would woo them with stories she made up about her childhood growing up on a farm in the Midwest. She told them how her grandparents had died in the Holocaust and how she was very close with her loving, hard-working father. And she told them all about her two sons that she kept in touch with regularly. In the three years that she took care of Alice, Teresa never once mentioned having any daughters. In 1990, Teresa began night classes to train to become a certified nursing assistant. Just what the world needed, more murdering healthcare workers. Teresa hadn't told Robert or any of her surviving children that she had settled in Utah and none of them knew where she had disappeared to. So no one knew that, when Terry got married a second time, her new home was just 10 miles away from the woman who would have killed her if she hadn't escaped. Terry's life leading up to that point had been anything but easy. The abuse she had experienced and being a witness to the murders of her sisters had irreversibly damaged her young mind. She was plagued by a raft of mental illnesses and the drug addiction she had picked up while working on the streets. There were also permanent physical reminders of Teresa's torture. Terry was both desperate to have children of her own and also petrified that she would turn out just like her mother. But in the end, the choice over whether or not to have children wasn't a choice at all. The beatings that Teresa unleashed on Terry as a child had caused so much damage to her reproductive organs that she was told that she would never be able to carry a child of her own. All Terry really wanted was to feel safe and loved, but she couldn't shake what her childhood had done to her. How could she have a normal romantic relationship when she had never experienced unconditional love and affection from the one person who was meant to give her both? It will come as no surprise that her marriage was anything but stable. The police were regularly called out for domestic disturbances at their home, and more often than not, Terry was the one who instigated the violence. She became a familiar face at the county lockup, where she spent countless nights during her marriage. When she returned home, things would calm down for a while, but Terry would always be back before long. It was during this time that Terry told the local sheriff about her mother and her murdered sisters. The sheriff had been put in touch with Terry by a mutual friend and he listened intently as she told him about the horrors she had experienced. 
The sheriff recorded the whole conversation, but he didn't realize until later that the batteries on his recorder had died halfway through the conversation. The following day, he sent a letter to the Sacramento Police Department detailing what he had been told and enclosing what he had recorded of the conversation. In that letter, he wrote some of the details about where Susan and Sheila's bodies had been left, which Terry had been told by her brothers. A Sacramento detective was assigned to look into the claims made in the letter and on the tape. He contacted one police department in the area where Terry had mentioned that one of her sister's bodies had been dumped. The local officers were unable to locate a report of any bodies that matched the details Terry had given, and because of that, they wrote off every other claim she had made without even following up to ask her for more information. Years later, it would be revealed that the detective had contacted the wrong police department for the jurisdiction where Susan's body had been found burned. To make matters worse, Sheila's murder had been incorrectly attributed to a series of murders carried out by a long-haul trucker. When Sheila's body was found, the man had just been arrested for the murders of ten women. Threads of carpet fiber had been found in the popcorn box along with Sheila's body and they were sent away to the state crime lab for analysis. Due to an administrative error, one of the two samples taken from the cab of the serial killer's truck was labeled as being from the box Sheila was found in. Naturally, because the two samples were taken from exactly the same place, the lab confirmed that they were a direct match. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Teresa had finished her nursing aid training, and she used her new qualification to secure a better paid live-in position with another woman named Alice. Once again, Alice's friends and family couldn't believe they had been so lucky to secure the services of such a kind, compassionate, and professional carer. It wasn't long before they began to consider Teresa Cross as a member of the family, and they invited her to join them in celebrations including Thanksgiving and Christmas. What Teresa didn't know then was that every passing domestic incident that Terry was involved in, she was becoming more and more determined to put her past behind her. The only way to do that was to make sure her mother was arrested and charged with the murders of Susan and Sheila. When she saw that episode of America's Most Wanted, she took it as a sign that the time had come to reveal all, and to not stop until someone took her seriously. In October of 1993, Police Sergeant John Fitzgerald listened as Terry Knorr tearfully recalled her traumatic childhood in explicit detail. She told him about being locked in a freezer as punishment, being force-fed, being molested by her brother, and of course, she recalled in gruesome detail the excruciating murders of her sisters, and she pointed the finger for all of it directly at her mother. It was almost too much to believe. Almost. Sergeant Fitzgerald had joined the police department less than a year after Susan's body was found. He had become familiar with the details as it was one of the only unsolved cases in the department at the time. It also turned out that he had been the one to request that America's Most Wanted run the segment about the unidentified body in his jurisdiction. 
That call from Terry was the first time the two Jane Doe's had ever been linked to each other. Terry's story was so far-fetched and so despicable that Sergeant Fitzgerald knew he needed to be 100% sure that what was said was true, so he asked Terry about the ring which had been found on Susan's body. Without hesitation, Terry described the silver ring with three rows of diamonds and she followed up with a description of the earrings with bells on them. These were the kind of details that only someone familiar with the victim would have known, and they confirmed for John that Terry's story was most likely true. The next day, John did a little unofficial investigation before he formally notified the police departments responsible for the two Jane Doe's. He visited the large home where Terry alleged the family had lived when the violence began, and he spoke to the building manager of the apartment which Teresa had ordered to be burned down to hide evidence of the murders. Once again, everything Terry had told him added up. The next day, he flew to Salt Lake City to speak with Terry face to face. For hours, Terry recounted yet again what she had experienced. Finally, after all these years, she felt like she was finally being taken seriously. When the interview concluded, they still couldn't quite believe that a mother could put her own children through so much. As soon as they got back to Sacramento, they spoke with the district attorney and an investigation was formally opened, nearly ten years after Teresa had committed her first murder. The investigation began with trying to track down Teresa. At the time, officials also wanted to speak to Terry's brothers, Billy and Robert. It wasn't only that they could potentially corroborate Terry's story, they were also implicated as accomplices to both murders. They had been the ones to hold Susan and Sheila down while Teresa beat them and they were involved in disposing of their bodies. Billy had also been the one to set fire to Susan while she was still alive. It wasn't hard to find Robert. He had been arrested for murder back in Nevada not long after Teresa had run off to start her new life in Utah. In that incident, he had walked into a bar, attempted to rob the place, and then shot the bartender. Robert was serving a sentence of 15 years when officials charged him with being an accomplice in both of his sister's murders. While officers tried to track down Billy, they spoke to Teresa's first child, Howard, who added even more details to the horrors Terry had shared. He was the oldest of the children and he could remember a time before his mother was so evil. He told them in brutal detail how his mother would whip him and his siblings as well as beat them with the Board of Education and burn them for any supposed misdeed. He was forthcoming about his sexual assaults on Terry and he made one further startling confession. He had also molested his little brother Robert. Out of all of the surviving children, Billy seemed to be the only one who appeared to have turned his life around. He had a nice girlfriend, lived in a comfortable apartment, and had a steady job. When he was taken into custody for questioning, he admitted that his mother had beaten and abused all of the children, but he denied any knowledge of what had happened to his sisters. When he was told that the officers already knew he was involved in their torture, he started blaming Susan and Sheila for being prostitutes and being out of control. Like that somehow justified what was done to them, even if it was true. Then he told the officers that Terry had been in the car when they dumped Susan and set her on fire. He tried to assert that she could have stopped them at any moment and therefore she should be in trouble too. 
When the officers told him that they didn't believe him, he admitted that he had been the one to set his sister on fire, but that he had only done it because his mother threatened him with death. The investigators now knew that everything Terry had told them was true. A violent killer was on the loose and they had made no progress in tracking her down. Over the years, Teresa had been known to go under a number of different aliases. All of these alternative names were released in the warrants for her arrest, but no one seemed to consider including her maiden name on the notifications. Teresa was blissfully unaware anyone was looking for her until a press release from the sheriff's office in Sacramento was published. The investigators named Teresa Knorr as a person of interest in a quote-unquote alarming and bizarre homicide. That has to be the understatement of the century. A few days after Teresa's name was released to the public, Terry appeared on news bulletins detailing some of the less graphic aspects of her mother's abuse. It was then that Teresa could feel the net closing in, so she made plans to do what she did best. Well, second best after beating and murdering her children, she decided to disappear. On November 5th, she took out a $5,000 loan against her wages from her boss. Then she packed all of her belongings into boxes, stacked them into the back of her car, dropped Alice off at her regular bridge game, and made a run for it. But Teresa only got 30 miles down the road when she was pulled over for drunk driving after officers saw her weaving in and out of traffic. When she was taken to the local police station, she showed officers the driver's license she had that was in her maiden name, which is what they used to process her. All of the alerts for the murders had been in the name Teresa Knorr, not Teresa Cross. Later that evening, she was put in a taxi from the station and sent right back to Alice's house. On November 9th, the officers who had processed the drunk driving paperwork had stumbled across a post office box in the name of Teresa Knorr, which was used to receive the driver's license in the name of Teresa Cross. Because she had been pulled over, the officers also had the details of her vehicle and the address to where the car had been registered. It was a roundabout way of saying they finally had an address for Teresa Knorr, murder mother extraordinaire. The next day, the officers from Sacramento flew to Salt Lake City and staked out the address. They flagged down a passing local police officer to ensure there was no trouble with jurisdiction, and at 5.15pm, they knocked on the front door, armed with an arrest warrant for multiple murders. It took a minute for the door to be answered, and then, all of a sudden, right there in front of them was Teresa Knorr. She looked nothing like an evil, pathological, torturing murderess. The woman standing in front of them was tidily dressed with her hair done perfectly and her face fully made up like you might imagine a kind and caring grandmother might look. After confirming her identity, the officers introduced themselves and informed her they were there to arrest her for murder. Teresa was momentarily shocked. She had moved states, changed names, and even attempted to change her personality in an effort to avoid her past catching up with her. But the monster behind her facade was ever-present. As Teresa was led away to the police cruiser, she stated, quote, I feel like a sacrificial lamb being led to the slaughter. Once in an interview room, Teresa refused to say a word except to demand a lawyer. After a short battle to avoid extradition, she was transported to California to face justice for the murders of her two daughters. In her first court appearance, Teresa embodied the character of a wronged woman. 
Despite wearing a prison jumpsuit, she had her hair perfectly coiffed and her makeup was expertly applied. Billy and Robert were jointly charged with the murders of their sisters, but due to the fact that Robert was already in prison, only Billy appeared alongside his mother that day. On November 15, 1993, Teresa Knorr was formally charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and two special circumstances charges which were multiple murders and murder by torture. She pleaded not guilty to them all. From prison, Robert Nork had a deal to reduce his sentence. In exchange for testifying against his mother, he would be sentenced to three years imprisonment, which could be served concurrently with his current sentence. That meant no additional prison time. Billy also cut a deal and in exchange for his testimony, he was sentenced to probation and ordered to undergo therapy. When Teresa heard that Robert and Billy were going to testify against her, she decided not to take her chances with a jury. She was facing the death penalty and with all of her living children set to testify against her and her dead children being used as evidence, she changed her plea to guilty in exchange for a life sentence. Both Robert and Billy claimed that their mother brainwashed them to believe what she said was true and that her sisters were possessed by the devil. Violence was completely normalized in their household and only Howard could remember a time before motherly love meant pain and abuse. The boys also stated that even if they had understood what they were doing was wrong, their mother was a deadly woman and they knew what she was capable of. From their point of view, their involvement wasn't a choice. If they refused, she would hurt them as much as she did their sisters. Robert was released from prison in 2013, but he was back in front of the court in 2016 when he was convicted of child sex offenses. He was found guilty of distributing child pornography over the internet, receiving child pornography over the internet, and possessing child pornography. He was subsequently sentenced to eight years imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Teresa has never given an interview or attempted to provide any explanation for her actions. If anything, her letters from prison expressly confirm that she believes she has never done anything wrong. Since her incarceration, Teresa continues to write letters to her friends in Salt Lake City. She tells them how she reads scriptures every day to get her through this difficult period in her life. She signs every letter with some variation of quote-unquote, in Christ's love. In 2019, Teresa was denied parole, but she can reapply in 2024. Terry Knorr lived to see Teresa imprisoned, but she died of heart failure in 2011 at the age of 41. She was never able to have children of her own. It takes a special kind of monster to murder not one, but two of your own children. And your first husband. And maybe even your sister. Teresa Knorr is absolutely where she belongs. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help.
If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.